Good morning. Our second reading today is from the book of Exodus chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took, with his, took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is this because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and waters, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered all the chariots and all the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word of God. When I think about the uh, big systems of thought, of philosophy, of religion, for approaching the big questions of life, something that I've ruminated on for years, um, I, I've come down to the two that make the most sense to me uh, when I've read about them and looked at them more fully, and they are either true atheism or faithful Christianity. So my own reflections are when you deal with things like death, and how to live your life without fear, atheism actually has a very clear answer. There is no God, there's no eternity, therefore there's no meaning in life, and in that nihilistic sense of things, you get to the end and say, all will die, that's the end, so quit worrying. It's bleak, but it actually holds tight um, philosophically. The other is the one that I prefer, um, not just because it's slightly more optimistic, um, because I think it also has intellectual philosophical roots that cause it to be thick. 
But the idea of facing death in Christianity without fear is because we believe that death is not the end. We believe that Jesus Christ did die, but he rose again, defeating death once and for all. So we have no reason for fear. We have no reason for fear because whatever man can do to us, even what nature can do to us, can't do enough to make God not Lord of all things. And so we can live in freedom and fearlessness, the freedom of how God created us to live now and forever. But I've found we rarely live in that freedom and fearlessness that I think the resurrection should call us to. Very much like Israel at the edge of the Red Sea, we look around at our circumstances and we forget who God is and what he's done, and we operate out of fear, not freedom. Let's look at the story of Israel being taken out of Egypt and look at it through that lens and see how maybe it gives us a vision of the life that we can be called to because of who God is. So we're now like halfway through this whole series in Exodus, right? And we're really, this is a great halfway point anyhow because this is when Israel finally gets out of Egypt. They have been in Egypt for hundreds of years, in slavery for generations. The promises of God to Abraham seem to have fallen flat. There is no hope. But then God arrives. God arrives in the burning bush and in the calling of Moses. And then God arrives in the form of the plagues upon Egypt, bringing judgment on the Egyptians and their gods. And God ultimately brings deliverance to his people. On that Passover night, he brings a final judgment on the gods of Egypt through the death of the firstborn son and delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then they get this vision that God is with them. It's a very hopeful vision. No matter where they go now, God is with them. I'm gonna read about it um, in, from chapter 13, which we didn't read. But it's this description of their exodus and their leading out in the time after they get out of Egypt. It says in verse 21 of chapter 13, and the Lord went before them, meaning basically with them, always with them by day, in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night, and a pillar of fire to give them light. God was always with them. I've delivered you, and I am always with you. But, but, verse 17, a little bit earlier says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Basically, they got out their Google Maps, and it said two to three weeks, we should be in Canaan. Maybe four for the slow people. But two to three weeks, maybe four, and God has taken them a different direction because they're following God's lead. This seems okay, but it leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. And it, it basically the description in some of the verses that were read and others that we didn't are that the Red Sea is in front of them. All around them is wilderness, and coming from one side is the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh sees this and hears about it. They're trapped. They don't know where they are or where they're going. And on top of that, we miss these free workers. Let's go and get them. So he harnesses his army, excited to go and get these people back, to be slaves again. They're trapped. I've got them. They're mine. Israel sees the armies of Egypt coming. They see the sea, the Red Sea in front of them, and the wilderness surrounding them. And what do they do? They're in great fear. We read this in chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. 
When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. This is one of the themes of the book of Exodus. Whom do you fear? What do you fear? God or man? God or circumstances? God or Pharaoh? And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? And what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Egyptians, For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is amazing. <laughs> the first thing they're doing in crying out is actually putting God on trial. Throughout the Bible, and especially in Exodus, you hear cry out or grumble. Okay, Those are basically technical legal terms for accusations in a legal courtroom. They're putting God on trial through the person of Moses, his representative. God, who do you think you are? What have you done? You have failed us. You are not truly God. The accusations fly against God. And why do they fly? Well, we actually get a glimpse of it here in verse 12, this, this most amazing phrase. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Fear has gripped their minds as they look around, and they can only see two circumstances, two options in front of them, right? So here's the Red Sea. We can't go through there. Here's the wilderness. We're going to die of starvation. There's no water. And behind us is the army. We have two options, death or slavery, the fear mind, even in us, the fear mind always comes to two options, death or slavery. There's no creativity in the fear mind. The fear mind is hopeless. It takes no faith to believe the fear. It takes faith to believe the God. Why, for instance, just kind of drawing on the same idea, why do we verbally lash out at people we love? Why do we get defensive or blame other people, accuse them? Why might we be mean verbally? It's because of fear. It's often fear that drives us. We realize, I'm either going to need to kill this person verbally or they're going to kill me. Those are the only two options. There's no other option. The fear mind is frozen in stupidity. It can only see kill or be killed. Slavery? or death. God, of course, has something else in mind. He tells us very clear in verse 4, I will, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue Israel, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians and all the whole world shall know that I am the Lord. I've led you here to get glory, to reveal who I am, to bring about a final defeat of all of your enemies so that you and everyone will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. God brings Israel to a place of vulnerability and weakness where they are not in control of the circumstances as a part of his plan to fully reveal himself and to completely defeat all of their enemies. He's saying to them, you have nothing to fear. I am with you. And we know this as Christians. In Christ, we have nothing to fear. 
And when we fully live into our in Christness, we really do live fearless. When you know who God is and what he has already done, and you know who you are in Christ and where you're going because you are in Christ, then your desires change. You desire God's glory and his kingdom purposes most, not your success, not your security, not you first. And at that point, you have no fear. Because you realize something that Israel didn't realize, it's that they cannot die until God is ready for you to die. You cannot die until God is ready for you to die. I believed this once, years ago. I was uh, on a wilderness trip, and I've told this story before, but in high school, I went on a wilderness trip in the Adirondacks. My youth minister, uh, Will Cravens, he's preached here a number of years back. He led a group of us up in the Adirondacks. We're on these canoeing trips, and we get to the edge of a lake, and we set up camp and um, have dinner, and then a storm's coming in across the lake, and it's a big lake. So you could see the storm coming in. So our guides who were there with us said, hey, let's sit out and watch the storm. It's kind of cool. There's not, we can't run away from it, right? The storm's coming. So we sat there, and we could see the lightning streaking down on the lake. It was pretty cool until it kept coming. And then the lightning and the thunder, you know how it's supposed to be a couple seconds apart, stopped being a couple seconds apart? And at that point, the lightning was striking all around us. The guides said, okay, spread out. At that point, we're scared. They don't want us to be in clumps. At least 15 feet apart, scrunch down, sit on your life preservers. We're trying to have insulation so we don't get struck by lightning. The lightning starts hitting so constantly and the thunder is right on top of us that kids are getting scared. Not me, I was totally fine, but most kids were getting scared. And Tom Pounder, a friend of mine, calls out to Will. He says, Will, is this what God meant when he said we're supposed to fear him? And Will, in all of his theological wisdom, said, no, Tom, I don't think this is what God meant. As soon as he finished the sentence, lightning struck right on top of us. The thunder was so loud, the lightning was so bright, we screamed, except for me, and we all ran in different directions. As fast as we could, there was crying by lots of other people and huddling in different places in the woods. Eventually, the storm passed. We ended up back in our tents. The next morning, we got up and saw that the tree that was about 10 feet from where Tom was sitting had been struck all the way down by lightning. And at that point, I realized I could have died, and there is nothing I could have done to escape it. If God wanted to take me then, he would have taken me. And the rest of that trip, I was fearless. And for at least another three weeks after that, I was fearless. I realized I could not die unless God was going to take me. That didn't mean I was going to be foolish. I just knew, like, you know, there's some things you can't escape. I couldn't escape that lightning. God is in control. God is a good God. He loves me. I have no reason to fear. You know, God is constantly saying to us, follow me, trust me, follow me, trust me. And whenever he does that, we say, but, but that sounds dangerous. Or, and I, I'm not really good at that. Or, what if I fail? Or, that seems like the sort of place where I'm not really going to have any clear options out. Whenever he says, follow me, we hesitate. We say, are, are you sure? This doesn't seem right. I'm not sure. I'm scared. Follow me, trust me, and we always respond with a but. 
and, and also, don't you know who I really am? Israel is seeing things with their eyes. They see the Red Sea, and they see the wilderness, and they see Pharaoh's army. And they can only imagine two options, death or slavery. The fear mind has no imagination. And so they cry out, accusing and doubting God. Their fear is what drives their doubts. It's not their doubts that drive their doubts, it's fear. And the fear says, God is not really Lord, Pharaoh is. God is not really in control, that army is. Moses gives words to Israel that the Lord has given to him to give to Israel. In verse 13 and 14, we read it. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Fear not, stand firm, and be silent. And that be silent is not a nice phrase. It's a terse phrase. One commentator said it's basically saying, shut up, Israel. Be silent. Stop accusing God. Stop only seeing the enemy. Quiet your brain and your mouth. I am the Lord and I will fight for you. I will deliver you in the way that I choose. God is saying to his people, do you know me? Haven't you seen the plagues that I brought on Egypt? Don't you know that I love you? I have separated you out and protected you when that Passover came. Don't you know me? Don't you know that I love you? Trust me. Follow me. Trust me. Do not be afraid. You will not die till I say so. There's a guy I've listened to a couple of times recently. His name is Jamie Winship, and he's, does, he's on the kind of Christian speaker circuit. But he also worked um, in police and um, kind of law enforcement, and then he worked in peacemaking um, internationally. He especially worked in Muslim cultures and has a real heart for um, Muslims. Uh, he was during a season of his life in Indonesia. And he said he was there with his family in Indonesia doing some of this peacemaking and kind of working with Muslims. And in the midst of it, the, the entire uh, government of, of Indonesia collapsed. That's not a good thing because it results in complete civil unrest, revolts, people looting, robbing. And, and he was thinking, we should probably get out of here. My, my wife, my family, we, we have to get out of here. And he had this strong sense of following the Lord to say, don't go anywhere. Stay here. I'm going to show your sons that I am the Lord. He told this to his wife, and his wife said, okay, great. Our sons are going to know that, that he is the Lord, but what about us? Do we get out? He said they got in a car one day, and they were driving around in the city, and they came around a corner, and there was a mob coming towards them. These mobs had been looting, robbing, not just there, but days before as well. They get around the corner. They cannot back up. There's traffic everywhere. They're in their car. He's got his wife, his kids, and even some other people's kids in the car. And the mob is coming down. Most of them are masked as they're looting, breaking windows. They're looking for foreigners. And his wife says, what should we do? And Jamie says, I just said the first thing that came out. Pray that we would be invisible. So he told his sons and the other kids, 
pray that we would be invisible. So they all started praying, God, make us invisible. God, make us invisible. And that mass of people came, looting, robbing, and the car shook as the people passed by. But the windows were not broken. Nobody tried to get in. And then the mass of people passed by. And Jamie said, okay, you can stop now. They're gone. And the boys in the back seat said, no, we want to stay invisible. This is awesome. <laughs> you will die. But you can't die until God says so. And, and, you really can't die. Do you know this life is not the ultimate this life is not all there is. This life is a pale, flimsy shadow of eternity. We fight so hard to protect this life. That's, and that, there's a reason for that, right? But what's to come means we should never live in fear. Fear not, I am the Lord. Our fears are driven by a constant what if that circles in our head. Our fears are constantly driven by a what if, and it's always a worst case scenario, right? The fear mind only thinks of slavery or death, kill or be killed. It can never be more creative than that. And so all these things circle in our head whenever we're faced with anything. What if I fail? I shouldn't even try. I, I don't wanna try, because then I might fail. What if I get rejected? It's easier to kind of just live in my own world. What if people really knew what I was like? Would they laugh at me? Would they be disgusted at me? What if I get sick? What if I die? What if? You know, I have my own set of what ifs that's probably very different than yours, and it's related to being a pastor in our current culture. I'm in a public sphere, minorly public, okay? It's not that public. But my words are recorded every week. And I believe in the Christian God in a way that doesn't really align with the cultural narrative. The things that I believe in don't match up wholly with where people believe today. And I am friends with a lot of people who don't go to church. I love them, I care about them, I want to remain their friends. And I have fears that circle inside of me that I will be at some point accused falsely of things that I've said or believed without a fair trial, because that's how it works, and ultimately I'll be rejected and this whole thing falls apart. And then, in the better moments, I remember who God is, what he has done, what he says about me, and what my future is. And I think, so what if they did happen? Whatever your worst fears are, what if they did happen? Is God still God? Does he still love you? Is he still in control of eternity? Yes, yes, and yes. And there is no guarantee that if you trust and follow God, things will go easy. Or that you will escape at the Red Sea. Sometimes it's through suffering and loss that God brings about his greatest good in your life and in the world around you. 
I followed God to England in 2005 to pursue a PhD in New Testament studies. And it was, believe me, if I went through the whole scenario of how it happened, it was God's leading. The denomination was falling apart, my job didn't exist at the time, and there was a unique way that I was able to step forward by the circumstances that happened that were just miraculous. It was clearly God's leading to go forward and pursue this thing that I had dreamed about for years. When we got there, shortly after arriving, shortly after, a couple months later, I decided I hated it. I hated working on the PhD and I didn't really like England that much. In the end, I failed my dissertation. People don't fail dissertations. And we ran out of money. I followed God. How come it didn't succeed? Looking back, I can see how God used it. He increased my patience. I had to wait years for the denomination, for my ordination. It certainly humbled me. I abandoned these visions of the doctor pastor who writes the books and his speaks and all these things. Not that that's a bad thing, but I simply resorted to following God, and that's okay. I've seen how that time prepared me, all the study I had to do, increased my theological and analytical and exegetical skills and acumen and depth in a way where I can now enter scripture and enter our culture and exegete both of them in a way I never would have been able to do if I just stayed in a church. That time over there renewed my love, renewed my love for people outside of the church. I finally got out of the church, spent time with people who didn't go to church, and I loved them. And I still love them and want to spend time with them. But I also realized I loved the local church when I was over there, not just the academy. I didn't want to study all my life or teach in a theological seminary. And while I was over there, it increased my love for America, which was a good thing. I wanted to come back to D.C., to Vienna. And ultimately, it created a, a forced creation of trust. No PhD, no money, no ordination, but a passion to plant a church here in Vienna. Following God is no guarantee of success. Let me put that a different way. It's no guarantee of success on your terms. It is a guarantee that God will be glorified, that you will find the fullness of joy, and you will taste eternity now and forever. A different kind of success. In order to step into this, I want us to walk through, again, the words that I've been using about our identity. So we're talking over the past few weeks about our false identity, the gospel identity, and our kingdom identity. Our false identity is your fear, guilt, and shame. It's your things you've fallen short on, your sense of unworthiness, it's the sins you've done that if people knew about them that you would just be horrified, and it's the fears that grip you of things out of your control or the worst case scenarios. These things, fear, guilt, and shame, push us into sin and enslavement. These are, this is our false identity. This isn't really who you are. Who you really are is your gospel identity. Your gospel identity is who you are because of what Christ has done for you and what God says about you because of what Christ has done for you. Not fear, guilt, and shame, but a loved child of God, forgiven of all your sins, destined to be an heir of eternity. In our gospel identity, we live free from guilt, 
fear and shame so that we can live into our kingdom identity. This is my own phrasing, meaning God has made each of us in his image, but each of us uniquely are meant to be image bearers in a unique way. We're called to build his kingdom in a unique way. You have been gifted and called in a unique way. God has purposes for you that are different than for me, every one of us in this world. You cannot live fully into your kingdom identity until you grasp the fullness of your gospel identity, which is why tonight you should join us at 6.30 for Finding Your Identity in Christ, the session we're doing at the historic chapel. Until you have that gospel identity fully formed, you cannot live into your calling. Here's what Israel was doing. Israel's identity, their gospel identity was, you are God's chosen people. God loves you and has made promises for you for hundreds of years. God loves you. Their kingdom identity was to be a light to the nations. Through them, salvation was to come to the ends of the earth. They were loved and they had a purpose and calling, but they were constantly living in their false identity, saying, we are slaves. Egypt is more powerful than God. And they came to the only conclusion you can from a false identity. We will die. We will die. The false identity is constantly telling you, you will die. You deserve to die. You will die. Your kingdom identity says, I cannot die. There they are on the edge of the Red Sea, the army behind them, following the Lord's command. Moses parts the Red Sea. Israel walks through on dry land. Pharaoh follows them. God, through his power, brings the sea to fall upon the Egyptians. The Egyptian army is destroyed and they are gone and Israel is delivered once and for all. And all of this points ahead, doesn't it? All of this points ahead. It anticipates a greater deliverance and a greater defeat of enemies on the cross. Satan, like Pharaoh, thought he had Jesus trapped. Ah, I've got him now. Not only do I have him, I have Judas, I have the religious leaders, I have Pontius Pilate, everybody's working with me. I've got him trapped. He gives himself up for arrest, he doesn't even fight, and now I've got him nailed to a tree, literally trapped. And then he dies, and Satan thinks, I have him, I've won. Until the walls come crashing in on Satan, because God intended the very same thing. Jesus goes down into death to rise up to new life, resurrection life. Death, Satan, and sin are defeated once and for all. As Jesus says, it is finished, everything was finished, including Satan, and the waters came crashing in on him and sin and death. The big idea of Exodus and this whole Red Sea narrative is not Look at how you can face your Red Seas or your Pharaoh's armies in your life with bravery. It is a demonstration of the lordship of Yahweh and the defeat of the enemies of God. It is a declaration of who God is and what he has done. And you live out of that. James Bruckner, a commentator, had these great words just kind of describing what we're supposed to get out of this whole Red Sea narrative. It's this, the lordship of Yahweh means more than release for slaves. It anticipates the coming end of the principalities that twist the world. 
The creator moved by drawing Pharaoh and his armies into the sea to redeem creation and restore it to the creator. Escaping Pharaoh was not enough. His power and rule needed to be broken so the whole world would know who is the sovereign Lord. The Red Sea deliverance declares that Yahweh is Lord and points ahead to the ultimate act of salvation and defeat of enemies in the cross of Christ and the empty tomb. And thus Moses, in his song in, in Exodus 15, declares, you have led in your steadfast love the people who you, you have redeemed. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have shown who you are, that you love us, and that you are our redeemer. What does God want for you? What does he want for me? He wants us to be led in his steadfast love because you are his redeemed. He wants you to live in peace and hope of your gospel identity, not your false identity, so that you can live out the purpose and calling of your kingdom identity. What does God want for you? He wants you to follow him, to trust him, to know him, to know his salvation, his presence, his joy. Not to know fear, not to be frozen, avoiding risk averse in life always, not living just for comfort or control or ease only, but to know his peace in all circumstances, his presence with you through everything, his purposes for you through everything, and to know joy, unending joy. You may die if you follow him. Actually, whether you follow him or not, you're gonna die. But if you follow him, you do not need to die forever. You won't. Let's pray. God, our Father, God Almighty, creator of the universe, redeemer of all things, at the edge of the Red Sea, you delivered your people and defeated their enemies. On the cross, you delivered your people and defeated all of our enemies. Give us trust to see in the cross and the resurrection the new life that you have opened for us, the life of peace and hope and joy and fearlessness so we can follow you and know that life now and forever. Amen.
Set free. 